Thank you, Amy. Come and worship, worship Christ the newborn King. What a great season it is, isn't it? Isn't it great to be together around Christmas season? If you'd turn those lights on for me, Alex, if you would, and those uh, who are wanting their little ones to be in children's church through grade four, you can be dismissed at this time. Your teachers will meet you in the foyer, and you can pick them up at the close of our time together. For the rest of you, you can turn in your copy of God's Word, if you would, to... It's great to be excited about Children's Church. I'm sure you're wanting to do that right in your seat right here for Adult Church, right? You're like, let's go! All right. God's plan for a healthy church, steady through the books of First and Second Corinthians. Highs and lows of ministry is our, is our topic as we begin chapter 6. Dealing with hardships, incongruities in ministry is our specific topic as we work through this verse 8 through verse 11. I'd like if you would, just turn in your copy of God's Word. Let's read together uh, our text that's under our review today. and We'll start in verse 1. We'll, we'll end in verse 10. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, verse 2, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but, verse 4, in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, Verse 5, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Verse 6, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Verse 7, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Verse 8, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report. Regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown, verse 9, yet well known, as dying, yet behold, we live as punished, yet not put to death, verse 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Let's stop right there. Joseph Hart, a London minister and hymn writer, born in the early 1700s, penned these words. He says, how strange is the course that a Christian must steer, how perplexed is the path he must tread, the hope of his happiness rises from fear and his life he receives from the dead. His fairest pretensions must wholly be waived and his best resolutions be crossed, nor can he expect to be perfectly saved till he finds himself utterly lost. When all this is done and his heart is assured of the total remission of sins, when his pardon is signed and his peace is procured, from that moment his conflict begins. That's pretty good, isn't it? In our passage today, really beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul describes some of those types of ironies of the ministry of reconciliation. And it's not a new observation as we look at Paul's words, nor is it the only place in the Word of God that we find them. In fact, we could be safe in saying, like Hart does, that ironies and incongruities mark the life of the redeemed. For example, in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, for whoever wishes to save his life will what? Lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So in other words, we save our lives by giving them away to Christ and the gospel, and we lose our lives by trying to save them. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Therefore I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, what? Then I'm strong. So in other words, we're strong when we're weak. And John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches, he who abides in me, and I in him. He bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So we're strong when we're weak and powerless in our own, what? Strength. In Romans chapter 6, verse 18, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. In other words, the irony is we find perfect freedom in being Christ's slave and bondage when we're free from his yoke. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Paul says, In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. And the irony is what? When we, we will find more joy in sharing what we have than we do in getting more. And on that same note, in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24, there's one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There's one who withholds what is justly due and yet it results only in want. Verse 25, the generous man will be prosperous and he who waters will himself be watered. In other words, the irony is what? We increase what we have by giving it away and experience poverty through hoarding it. In Luke chapter 14, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, we're humbled when we make a lot of ourselves, and the Lord exalts us when we humble ourselves. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And the irony is what? When we are wise in man's view, then we're fools in God's sight. And when we are fools in the world's view, then we're truly wise in God's sight. How about Matthew chapter 6, verse 19? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where the thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And what's the irony? Well, life of faith brings freedom from care and anxiety and the life of sight brings fear of loss. So it's not surprising to us, is it, to hear Hart's poem and to think about the section that Paul just penned in verses 8 through 10, that our life really is full of those kinds of paradoxes and irony. In fact, you could say that that really marks the life of the believer. And just those few examples, it shouldn't surprise us that the incongruities of the priorities and the axioms of faith should also be found in the course of ministry. Right? Because these are the axioms of faith that we just read, right? But in the course of ministry, then we should probably suspect that we'll find those kinds of ironies as well. Now, just some rhetorical questions at this point. And you will know this because we've been through this already. Are we commended by God for storing up treasure in heaven rather than on earth? What's the answer? Yes. 
Because first Timothy six nineteen says, when you do that, you'll begin to experience that, which is life indeed. How about this question? Are we committed by God for being fools in the world's view? What's the answer? Yes, we are. He who wins souls is wise. The preaching of the cross is the power of God and foolishness to the world, right? So obviously we're committed by God for those things. Are you committed by God for humbling yourself? Yes, we just read that passage just a second ago. Are you committed by God when you faithfully give? Yes, right? So that your giving will be done in secret, Matthew 6, 4, and your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you openly. So additionally, it, then is if it should not be surprising to us that if God commends us for choosing correctly in the incongruities of the priorities and axioms of faith, it should not surprise us that that we will be commended when we find ourselves in the middle of the incongruities and ironies of ministry. Because it's part and parcel of who you are as a believer, see. And that's precisely Paul's emphasis beginning in verse 8. And again, all these things are, are prefaced with a phrase, in much endurance. So again, we come to these set of nine, but it's prefaced within much endurance. So in patient endurance and whatever comes, that takes Paul and will take us through the first nine experiences in hardship. If you, t if, if that's where the Lord has you and you end up going there and you have these experiences in hardship that we saw Paul talk about, then it will take you through. Patient endurance will take you through. And it took Paul and it will take us through the following nine responses to hardship, which is purity, right? And knowledge and love and all those kinds of things. And it will take him through the nine ironies of ministry that begin in verse 8 and, and go on through verse 10, uh, where we are today, and it will take us through those ironies of ministry. And enduring patiently in them, com commended, that puts God's stamp of approval on the ministry that Paul did, and so we can understand it will commend, put God's stamp of approval on the ministry that we do. Now let's read the section and see what are no doubt common experiences among those who labor together with him. So look at verse 8, if you would, in your copy of God's Word, and we'll begin to go through these, this section. So Paul says, as he gets to these, these ironies of ministry, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, verse 9, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. That's our section. So again, sex, uh, sets of nine Paul uses to draw attention to what is obviously uh, common experiences. And that's, that's the issue again, I think, as we, so we look at this. It may seem strange that Paul should refer to these kinds of things, the hardships of ministry, the responses of ministry, these ironies that he experiences and that you and I experience as the kinds of things that commend his ministry. But I think underlying the reference here is the recognition that these are common experiences that all true servants of God share. So this is not just Paul uh, going through this. This is you and me. We can expect this to be the case as well. And and why is that true? Well, if you want to look at Matthew 10, verse 16, uh, we looked at this a while ago, but I want to see it just again real quickly just to remind you as we, my desire is to really finish this section today. Why is that the case? Why is it a common experience that's true of all servants of God? Well, because this was the experience of Jesus, quite simply. And, and we, we've had all kinds of imaginations of what Jesus was like, and, and our culture has, and, and the modern church has manipulated his life into something soft and cushy that just surrounds us and insulates us from the, the hardships of the world. But really, uh, Jesus really made it clear to his disciples as we begin in verse 16. He says, Behold, so look there if you would, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. 
But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before the governors and kings. Why? What's it say? For my sake. As a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So when it happens, it becomes a testimony that you belong to Jesus. See? Verse 19, but when they hand you over, do not worry about what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you're to say. Verse 24, it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Verse 21, brothers, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Verse 22, you will be hated by all. Why? Because of my name. Right. And, and mark this phrase, but it is the one who, and here's our word in verb form, uh, endured, hupomeno, you are the one who's endured patiently. You held your ground in all of those things, see, and you're going to see them because you are servants of mine, and you're doing it for my name, and because of my name's sake, it's happening to you. So when you endure uh, to the end, who will be saved, see? But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you'll not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Mark this, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops, do not fear those who will kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body and soul in hell. In other words, so it may be very difficult, come to the point of your own uh, death, but don't fear the people who take away just the fleshly body, see? You're like your master, see, and you want to become more, right? A disciple's not above his master, verse 24 says, or nor a slave above uh, his teacher. It is enough for the disciples that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. That's enough to become like them. And if you're like him, what? You'll experience the same thing that he experienced. So hold your ground, patiently wait, endure, endure, endure. So we see it all through the New Testament. And the Old Testament, as we'll see a little bit from now, when hardships come, when trials come, when people are unkind, when difficulties pop up, uh, when you're loved by some and hated by others, endure, and you'll be just like your master. And that sounds like a pretty special thing to me. How about you? Endurance. And we alluded to this passage last week, but I'll just read it to you now. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. So we come off of chapter 11, which is really the hall of faith, where people are named for the things they had to endure and all the difficulty they went through. And then as we closed last time, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12 says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, so those are the ones, as I told you last time, those are the ones who successfully endured hardship and responded correctly and went into spiritual battle with spiritual weapons and, and laid low fortresses and took captive every thought. And, and they watch you now as you live uh, this out, and they're the living testimony of the power of faith, see? So what do we do? Let us also lay up aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of, faith, of our faith, who for the joy set before him, and who are we supposed to be like? We're setting our eyes on him. We're supposed to be like him, right? That's what we saw in Matthew 10. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So he didn't care about the shame that went with the cross, see? 
and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, which is the opposite of enduring, right? So, as we finish up this section of hardships and dealing with hardships, how do you know a true servant of God? I mean, we've, we've traveled a long distance since we started in that verse 1 of chapter 6. How do you know a true servant of God? How do you know one? Paul says in verse 4, what? But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. How can you commend yourselves? Soon as tanto tastes, right? To, how can you literally stand together with those who are servants, commending and being commended? How is one commended to you? See, how is a servant of God to be identified? The same way they've always been identified. By enduring hardship. By enduring correct responses. And when they do all of that, they'll still need to endure ironies. Because some people won't love you for dealing truthfully in all of that other stuff. See? Endure the ironies. And so when believers endure hardship and they endure the correct responses and then in spite of doing those things correctly have these hardships pushed on them, they are presented as suitable for approval or acceptance. They receive the stamp. This is a commended minister. They're recommended by patiently sticking through it. See, And here's the irony. You know, the more faithful you are and the more you count it an honor to work together with him and the more you have this sense of investment, and these are all topics that we looked at already, and you remember these, and you continue in exhortation and you keep your urgency and you're not throwing up barriers to the gospel and you're dealing with hard experiences as you should. So you're losing sleep and you're missing meals, and you're laboring hard and you're fighting this battle for purity and you're increasing your knowledge of the word and you're responding in patience and in kindness with people and in genuine love and you're throwing down strongholds. The more, beloved, the more you're doing that, the more you're going to be loved and hated. The people who receive and believe the truth are going to appreciate you and tell you that. Like in Acts chapter 20, verse 37, Paul's getting ready to leave and they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they were accompanying him to the ship. And while some are doing that and they're hanging on to what you say, you have Jesus' experience in Luke chapter 19, he's teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything they might do for all the people were hanging on every word he said. So on, on, the, on the other hand, while some are on your neck kissing you and hanging on to every word you say and the people loving you, there's a, a plot over here to get rid of you, or in Paul's and Jesus' case, to kill you. See, And that's not surprising. You're someone's hero and you're someone's villain, see, someone's friend and someone's enemy, and that's the incongruity of ministry, see. And the more you do it correctly, the more likely it is that that's going to be the case. And, and that's the reputation of every godly, faithful minister. And by now, I know you get these principles, and I don't, I'm not going over them again, the nature of ministry of reconciliation, and you may not have experienced any of those hardships yet, and you may be responding correctly as you should, uh, or maybe you're not, but you get this. Okay, so let's go through these, these ironies. If you're doing those other things, these are the things you should expect in your life. It shouldn't surprise you. That's part of the blessing of the passage. So you read it, you realize this is not surprising, that you're going to find some in the ministry that you do that hate you and other people who love you. And they're right there together. So look at verse 8 in your copy of God's Word. Here's the first two. By, and, and again, we have a set here of 9, and Paul just kind of stays 
uh, as he writes through very creatively, uh, puts these together. Verse 8, it says, by glory and dishonor. So praised and despised. Treated as a man of honor and respect and rejected as a fool. Exalted and discouraged. Flattered, criticized. Cherished, scorned. It's all part of the job. So now in this first one, I just want to point out, and as you think about these and we look at them, it's perhaps possible that in each case, one part of the contrast here represents an evaluation uh, from, of ministry from God's viewpoint, and, and the other viewpoint is from a human perspective. So it's likely that's the case. Now, I don't think this is Paul's emphasis, and he doesn't say this. He doesn't say that the one is from God's viewpoint and the other is from the human viewpoint, so he can't be dogmatic about it. But I think it's likely that that's the case. And if you think through that, if you think through uh, people who, uh, who praise and people who despise, if you're doing the, f- the first 18 of those things, then the ones who are praising you, that would be a godly perspective. If you're committed to God for doing those things, then it would be obvious that's the case, okay? So, and maybe, you know, it just, I don't think it's Paul's emphasis, and, and we can't be dogmatic, about it, but I'm not sure that the minister, too, just speaking from personal experience, can discern between that all the time, right? You don't know which one is the godly perspective. Which one's the scorn is maybe godly and which one's the praise, which may be godly. See, and maybe that's just as well. But the fact remains that faithful ministers will receive glory from some and are given nothing but dishonor from others. And that's the mark of faithful ministry. Let's move on to the next one, as these phrases really don't require much to understand the sense of them. By evil report and good report. Paul says, I have found that you can't expect all men to speak well of you if you're faithful to God. And we looked at that out of Luke, didn't we? At chapter 6, you know. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way they treated your fathers of false prophets. So some people gave a good report of the Apostle Paul, and some gave an evil report, and some said the truth about his life and ministry, and some lied in order to slander and destroy him. And from a worldly perspective, and I've said this many times, especially as a youth pastor for so many years, you're only as good a minister as the person someone talks to about you says you are. So, and perhaps that's the same in every profession. You're only as good as a professor as rate my professor says you are, right? No, of course not. But you get the, you get the idea, right? So one student talks to another and says, don't take that guy, he's terrible. Or he's super hard, or, or I can't follow him, or whatever. And then the other student will say, I, this is my favorite professor in the whole entire, I'm just saying professors because we have so many. He's my favorite professor in the whole, in the whole school, see? Well, it's the same, it's the same in ministry, see? Uh, you're only as good as the person someone talks to about you. It's not the actual truth, but evil report and good report certainly is consistent. See, And it reminds me, though, of Ezekiel's ministry. So you're not alone here uh, in this evaluation of evil report and good report. Ezekiel's ministry and Jeremiah's we'll look at in just a minute. But Ezekiel, remember him? I mean, how about, how about these two guys? Would you like to have been in their shoes? You know, so the Lord says, hey, you know, they're not going to listen to you or, hey, I'm going to make you a bronze wall, an iron bar. You're not going to be, assa- be able to be assailed because they're going to assail you. Okay. You're going to have some hardship. But how about Ezekiel? Um, here's, here's what the Lord says to him. So how about this preface to ministry? So how many people would stay in seminary, you know, and, and I've been through there. How many would stay in seminary if this was over the door? I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you shall say to them, thus saith the Lord God, as for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, 
they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. That sounds fun. So hard life for you and in the middle of all your hard work, nobody's going to listen to you anyway. But I'm still going to send you to them. See? Neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they're rebellious. So what's the sense there? Some will gloriously and happily celebrate the impact that Ezekiel is going to have on them and appreciate the word of the Lord that comes to them. And some are going to be uh, very bad to him and have an evil report. Right, And that's the same as, as the impact of Paul's life on, on the church, as he brought the truth to them and God used that truth to change their life. Others would reject the truth and assault his character and slander him with the hope that they can destroy his effectiveness. And that's precisely what the Lord told Ezekiel. You know, uh, thorns and thistles are going to accompany you and you're going to sit on scorpions. In other words, your life is not going to be comfortable and it's going to appear that you have no impact whatsoever on the group that you're talking to. But don't worry about that. Just tell them what I tell you to tell them because they're a rebellious house. It's hard to reconcile that, isn't it? I mean, if you're, if you're taking on and, and giving your life away in ministry, you've got to understand that, that that's part and parcel of, how, of what happens. And the more faithful you are to do those things, the more likely it is that not all men are going to speak well of you. See? And, and I would say that Satan is still about doing that in congregations all around the world, a congregation that's not discerning, a congregation that allows itself to be led down a road of gossip and backbiting, he has a wide open playing field at that point. See, And that can be what someone who is a confronter, someone who uses the word of truth to make an impact, it will be their legacy to have this segregated kind of response of praise and intense criticism in the same group. See, Next part. Regarded as deceivers and yet true. So being called a liar by those who hate the truth and being called true by those who love it. That's the issue. John chapter 7, verse 12, there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning Jesus. Some were saying, here it is, some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. That's precisely it, isn't it? Regardless deceivers and yet true. Some say, oh, he's speaking the truth. He's, He's, he's doing exactly what the Lord would have him do with us, and I love every word he says, where can we go except to you? And others are saying, no, no, he leads the people astray, he's telling them lies. This is Jesus, and if you're his servant, if you're under him as a slave, then you should expect that to be part and parcel for your ministry, right? Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews, but when it was now the midst of the feast, of Je of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach, and the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned after never having been educated? In other words, this guy's an idiot, but listen to him speak. He's never had any education, and yet he speaks with power. So Jesus answered and said, my teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. So what's the dichotomy? Well, exactly what Paul says here. He tells the truth. He's a good man, right? And he tells lies. He leads people astray in the same group. And it reminds me of Jeremiah and his prophecy during the reign of Zedekiah. And, and, and I just went through this in my own personal reading, so it was fresh in my mind, so I wanted to include it as an illustration. So Hananiah is the false prophet, and, and there are some others, but he's the main one. And so the people, many of the people have already been taken away to Babylon. And so you know the context of this. And Hananiah is sending them letters, and he's saying to them, um, 
who've been carried away to Babylon, they're there. And he says, hey, you know, don't worry. In two years, the yoke of Babylonians will be lifted and you'll return home along with all the articles of uh, the temple. So, hey, everything's cool. God's going to stop this. Well, we know that's not the case because he'd already said through Jeremiah that it was going to be 70 years you were going to be there. So uh, Jeremiah, God's minister, sends them a letter and says, buy houses and buy land there and prosper in the land and help the king of Babylon prosper. You're going to be there. Have children. Make yourself comfortable there. You know, do business and bring, bring profit into the kingdom because you're going to be there 70 years. And he says to those left in Jerusalem, uh, Jeremiah says, don't resist the king of Babylon. This is from the Lord. Go out to him and give yourselves to him. This chastening is from the Lord, and his mind's not going to change about it. So just go ahead on out. Don't resist. And he begged the king to do the same thing. Just give yourself to the king of Babylon. Okay? Now, how is Jeremiah rewarded for that? Now, here's a guy speaking the truth, and here's how he's rewarded. Jeremiah 38, 4. I'm just giving you a very small section. This is an incredibly interesting read, and if you've not read through uh, the prophet Jeremiah, you need to, uh, because there are so many parallels to today and, and just the way people respond and all that. But this is so, I, I love this passage, uh, not for Jeremiah's sake. Um, but here, here he says this, then the officials said to the king, so they hear him saying, Hey, you're going to be there for 70 years, buy land, buy houses, prosper, make the king wealthy, make yourself, uh, uh beneficial to the land. He says to the people who are still in Jerusalem, don't resist the king, go with him. This is from the Lord. You're going to go from here. Don't, don't hold back. This is from the Lord. And so then the officials said to the king, so those are in Jerusalem. They hear Jeremiah saying this and they saw what Jeremiah wrote. Now let this man be put to death inasmuch as he's discouraging the men of war who are left in the city and all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the well-being of the people, but rather their harm. So here's Jeremiah speaking God's truth. And there's some, there's a bunch of people there saying what he's speaking is for the harm of the people. He's not helping the people. In the same group, see, you got people saying, hey, let's, let's put him to death. So verse five, King Zedekiah said, behold, he's in your hands. That's really great. Pass the buck. He's in your hands for the king can do nothing against you. Then they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Melchizedek, the king's son, which was in the court of the guardhouse. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. Now the cistern was, was there with no water, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank into the mud. That's nice, right? So he gets through speaking the truth. And he tells them exactly what they should be doing. And it's for the benefit of the people so they won't be killed by, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his, and his army. Go out and go with him. You don't have to suffer this horrible loss here in the city. And he gets through with all that for the people's benefit because it's from the Lord. And anything that's from the Lord is for your benefit, right? Regardless of how hard it may seem, it is for your benefit. So he's regarded as a deceiver and yet what? True. Punished as a deceiver yet vindicated by the Lord. See? And it was the same for Paul. He, he was accused of being a deceiver, a liar, a false apostle. Was he one? No. But he, he experienced the, the scorn of rejection by giving them the very words they were supposed to hear. See. In Acts chapter 21, verse 27, talking about Paul, when seven days were almost over, Paul's in Jerusalem. The Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and lay hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and against the law and against this place. And besides, has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defied this holy place. Now, those were just complete fabrications, weren't they? And they were, they were meant to discourage Paul. They were meant to malign him. They were meant to place him in a place of harm so that he would be seized by the people. That's precisely what happened. And apart from the Romans stepping in, Paul would have probably been beaten to death, but the Lord spared him and put him in jail. 
So obviously Satan wants to destroy the reputation of anyone who has become a force for the truth. Even today it's still going on. Uh, so the one who has a faithful ministry may see this as part of their lot. And again, uh, those who judge from a human point of view, so outsiders or perhaps the critics in Corinth, uh, they hold Paul in dishonor and, and ill repute. But those who are no longer viewing things from a human point of view hold him in honor and in good repute. And they're in the same group. Those who minister together with God are often treated as liars and, and yet are true. And those who are criticized, those who criticize Paul because he didn't carry letters of recommendation that we saw in chapter three, verses one through three may have regarded him as an unknown and nobody. But those with godly discernment could recognize that he was a true apostle. And those were in the same group. See? And, and that's what we see in verse nine, isn't it? And at the start of the next set of three, as unknown, he says, yet well known. By, by the world and by the critics, uh, Paul was regarded as a nobody. He was recog not recognized, uh, but those who no longer judged according to worldly standards recognized his apostleship, and to them he was well known. A and this phrase perhaps describes what Paul is doing here, isn't it? He said, I'm, I'm committed to you by how I've run my course. See, they say, oh, you're just a, a nobody. We don't recognize you. And so here he is writing an active letter saying, I'm committed to you, by this ministry that I do, and here's why. I've endured hardship, I've responded correctly, and these ironies are a regular part of my life, see? And the statement really answers, you know, a number, a number of questions, see? And 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, let a man regard us in this manner. So Paul, again, in his first letter, is writing and saying, you know, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the ministries of God. So if you're, if you're thinking about who I am, regard me that way, a servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be, one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So the statement answers that a number of questions. Paul simply says, I'm unknown to you, okay, regard us as a servant of Christ and a steward of the mysteries of God, and on those two counts, I'm trustworthy. This boils it right down to very simple things that he has to do. You see the same idea in 2 Corinthians 3, and we remember this from not too long ago. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, do I have to go through this whole thing about introducing to you who I am and what I do? Or do we need a some letters of, of commendation to you from us? Are you, are, you are our letter written on our hearts and known and read by all men. Paul says again simply, you regard me as an unknown? I'm not a true apostle or a minister of God? You need a letter of introduction, huh? Well, I don't think so. You're my letter. You're my letter. And just as a footnote, this, this was probably an adjustment for Paul at first, wasn't it? If you think about his life before his conversion, he was well known and respected in the Jewish community, wasn't he? He was incredibly smart. He was zealous. He was a top-tier Pharisee, if you will, blameless from his own perspective. And in front of others who are the elitists around him, he was the elite of the elite. Great credentials, well known for leading the assault of persecution on Christians. But when he became a follower of Jesus, that all reversed, see? And you can see this thought pattern change in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever things were gained to me, what does he say? Those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I've realized that the things I thought gave me credentials, I'm going to have to give those up. More than that, not just I'm going to have to give them up, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, whatever it is besides what I've already had to give up, I'm just going to say 
whatever it is that gave me credentials before, those are all going to be out the window. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. This is quite an adjustment for Paul. What things were gained to him? Well, his reputation, his intelligence, his zeal for the law, that being a Hebrew of Hebrews or the tribe of Benjamin, well-known, respected. That was all stripped away. See, I've suffered the loss of all things, Paul says, and now that I look at them, I can count them as what? Rubbish. Everything reversed. And that was an adjustment, no doubt. He was unknown now to the world that he used to be a part of, and he was now well-known to believers. He was ignored by many who never heard of him, and yet for others, he was the most important person that ever lived because he brought the truth to them. And, and for some, he was an obscure nobody, and for others, he was everything, and that's how it is, see. There's this world out there that doesn't know who the faithful are, but we know, don't we? We should, anyway. We know who the faithful are. Then the second of this three in verse nine, as dying... He says, yet behold, we live. Remember chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively, excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, he will yet deliver us. And, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, it's like, is like that. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words, always on the brink of death. And the last one from verse 9 is like it, as punished, yet not put to death. Both of those really come together, don't they? Judged by worldly standards, Paul's career was a miserable one, wasn't it? After he came to faith, his career was a miserable one. By worldly standards, it went downhill fast. He was continually exposed to the danger of death, punished by angry mobs and civil authorities on a regular basis. His enemies dogged his steps to destroy him and his ministry, and just when they thought they had him, he got away. They stoned him and left, for, left him for dead, and he rose up from the pile of stones and went back into the city and preached again to the same people, but God delivered him again and again and again. So contrary to all expectations, behold, he lives and he's not killed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, and we'll get to this passage at a later date, but just illustrates his general observation of the constant dichotomy in his ministry. In far more imprisonments, now this is quite the, quite the change from previous to being redeemed, right? In far more imprisonments, beaten time without number, oft in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. So these are some of the terrible ways he was treated, and, and I'm sure... If you think about this and you, you realize this is not isolated just to Paul, I'm sure there are thousands suffering these same things in China today and in North Korea and South Sudan and Syria and Iran and other places. See? But like every other believer, he was invincible as long as God wanted him alive. And then when God was ready to have him, he brought him to himself. See? Now we come to these last three incongruities, verse 10. Look there with me and I'm going to finish up today, Lord willing as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And I think this is one that is as important for us as any we've studied so far. And every one of these, I think, are super valuable for us. Because we all experience rejection, we all experience, you know, in the same crowd, people who love us, people who hate us. And the more faithful you are to ministry, the more you're going to have that dichotomy constantly in your face. But this one I really like, uh, just, and I'll tell you in a minute why. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
And the question is, and the question is, is it okay to be sorrowful? And what's the answer? Yes, it is okay to be sorrowful. Was Paul sorrowful? Yes, a lot actually. Second Timothy chapter four, verse fourteen. Just a few illustrations. And I want you to hear the. I'd like you to feel the heart of this letter. I think that you'll. The next couple of illustrations, I think you can sense what's going on here if you're reading it, uh, understanding Paul's life up till now. Okay, so Paul's penning the end of this letter to Timothy, and he says, uh, "Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm." Is that fun? Is it fun for somebody who has the the power and the ability to do you much harm for you to endure it? No. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So what did he base his response on? The truth of God's word, right? So responding in the truth is pretty important, isn't it? Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. So giving a warning to other churches, be careful of this guy. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. What's that sound like? That's sadness, isn't it? So here he is defending himself against false accusations and false charges. Is any of his disciples, are any of his disciples there with him? No. Is anybody there who is a believer who's speaking up for him? No. Not according to this letter. Everybody deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Was it right for them to be gone? No. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was, here's another one, rescued out of the lion's mouth. We'll talk about that in just a second, but that sounds like he was in the ring. He didn't talk about it. It would have been appropriate and for, from a worldly perspective of throwing him there. For the entertainment of the crowd. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick in Miletus. Verse 21, catch this one. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you. Also, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and the brethren. Verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Can you catch the sorrow that's behind the penning of the end of this letter to his son in the, in the faith? I had a lot of trouble with Alexander. I was alone to defend myself from false accusations. The Lord strengthened me when I was at the end of my strength. I thought I would die in the ring, but the lion didn't kill me. I'm very lonely. Please come before winter. May the Lord be with your spirit, which is the seat of the emotions that's fresh in his mind. Why? Because the Lord had to encourage his own spirit, didn't he? You can be very lonely when you're doing the work of reconciliation. I'll just tell you as a as personal observation, that is the most common call or letter I get from our missionaries, both here at Berean and ones that I've, I've been a part of before. It's the private letters of how lonely it is, how difficult it is, how isolated people feel when they're doing the work of the ministry. It's no different when you're here than it is when you're out on the field. It's a lonely place to be. When you're doing the ministry like the Lord wants you to do, you're going to find yourself isolated most of the time. And, and this is, these are ones, people that you know have called me about that very thing. 
So when you're praying for those who minister, pray for that. May the Lord be with their spirit and encourage them. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, again, very great illustration. For out of much affliction, here's what Paul says, out of much affliction and anguish of heart. Does that sound like sorrow and, 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 uh, and grieving? I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Much of what he wrote, he sorrowed over. He struggled with the writing of it with a lot of grief. In speaking about his fellow Jews, he said in Romans 9, verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is absolutely true, and the Lord's my witness. What I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for my brethren. So always in Paul's mind, there was this sorrow of those who've rejected Christ, the Jews who wouldn't come to faith, who rejected the Messiah, and were not true Jews in that respect. They haven't been completed. He recalls his ministry with Epaphroditus, and he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier. How much did he adore him? That's some pretty high praise, right? Would you like Paul to save you, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier? That means you're going to have to align your ministry a lot like we just have been reading for that to be the case. Watered down ministry, you know, spotty ministry coming when you feel like it, not coming. You're not going to be a fellow worker, fellow soldier, and also your messenger and minister to my need. You're not going to be that if that's how your ministry looks, see. But if it is, then he's going to say that because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So Epaphroditus got very sick in the course of the ministry, for indeed he was sick to the point of death, so very sick, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I would not have what? Sorrow upon sorrow. So there's already sorrow there. Why? In the writing of, of the many letters that he wrote and, and, and struggling with all the things he had to struggle with and, and the anguish that he had to go through. And then upon that sorrow would have been the death of Epaphroditus, somebody who was a co-laborer with him. So is it okay to be sorrowful? I think we can say that that's part and parcel of, of ministry that you're invested in, that you're going to be sorrowful over people who walk in sinfulness and walk apart from the church. You're going to be sorrowful over people who reject the gospel, right? You'd be sorrowful over the fact that there's this dichotomy always in your ministry where some people are, they hate you and call you a deceiver and other people love you because the ones who hate you, you don't ignore, right? I mean, they get, un, they get in there too. They, what they say gets in your skin, right? And preserves your heart. So there's no way Paul could look at life in a trivial manner. See, he had a broken heart over the unconverted sinner, particularly among Israel. He had a broken heart over disobedient believers, over false teachers, over corruption and sin in his churches. He's not immune to sorrow, see? He, and those who minister together with him will not be immune to sorrow. Now, here's the thing. We're not talking about feeling sorry for yourself, okay? And I think that's the big, that's the big disclaimer here. He knew what it was like to be discouraged and disappointed, but here's the deal. It doesn't mean that the apostle had a naturally miserable disposition. No. Not at all, because he could say in First Thessalonians chapter 5 or 16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So in the middle of sorrow, in the middle of hardship, and grieving over all those things, what could he say? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. What does James say? Count it all joy when you face various trials and temptations. I read that early, early this morning. It just reminded me what we were going to talk about here. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Here's what he says. So here's Paul, who's sorrowful over, has a broken heart over unconverted sinners and, and among Israel, broken heart over disobedient believers, over false teachers, over corruption and sin in the church, over, over lackadaisical workers, and all the stuff that was part of the grieving process. And then in Philippians chapter 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your dental spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. So in the middle of the difficulties, he's close in proximity and close to what? Close to coming again too, right? So be anxious for nothing. So don't worry about things, right? But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So that's an imperative. Be, don't be anxious about anything. You're not worrying about it, right? You do have sorrow in your heart and you bring it before the Lord and you tell him what it is. You have hardship in your heart. You have a problem coming up. Don't worry about it. You can have some sorrow that it's there, right? But be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication, bringing it to the Lord with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what happens, Paul says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. In other words, your understanding of the immediate situation you're in seems grim, and your prayer and giving those difficulties over to the Lord takes you your, a peace and gives it to you that's beyond your immediate circumstances. See, it's, the peace is over all of that. And overpowers all of that, see. Surpasses comprehension. Your comprehension of how things are and what things look like and perhaps the way they're going to go, see, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's how he kept his balance in the ups and downs and in the incongruities of ministry, see. He knew what it was like to feel the pain of, of life far more than perhaps we can ever imagine. But here's the important part. It didn't overwhelm him. He was constantly dwelling on how, he wasn't constantly dwelling on how bad his life was or how it used to be or why it, you know, why all these things happened to me. He just wanted the church to know that's how it is. It's the irony of unending joy and unending sorrow, both. Let's look at the next one. As poor yet making many rich. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to go without sleep looked at that already. He knew what it was to suffer the difficulties of hard labor just to make ends meet. He had very little of the wealth or possessions of this world. There was a time when he had all of that, and occasionally there would be churches who would send him more than he would need so he could say in Philippians 4.12, I know what it's like to be in abundance and to be, uh, to be in abundance and prosperity. I know what it is uh, to have nothing. And that's that next one here that we're in, the last one, having nothing yet possessing all things. I know what it's like, he says, to have a lot and have an abundance, and I know what it's like to have absolutely nothing. See, he understood, he understood that he really didn't own anything, and of course, that may have been literally for Paul, he didn't own anything. I mean, as a general understanding, we don't owe any, own anything, do we? The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. So everything that we have is loaned to us by him. Every single thing you have and I have is a loan from the Lord to you if he owns the world and everything in it. We're going to get to that as we get to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But that may have been literal for Paul. He doesn't own anything. But it's true for everybody as well. Matthew 6 verse 19, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where their thieves do not break in or steal where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
See, Matthew 6, 25, same idea, just carries it right along. For this reason, I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, for your, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. And then this question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, is your life wrapped up in, is that your total life, the things that you have? Because Paul says, you know, I'm good with having nothing and yet possessing all things. And that will be the, really the common occurrence for those who are in faithful ministry, as poor yet making many rich. See. And then Matthew, Matthew 6, verse 31 and 33, Jesus finishes this up. Don't worry then saying, what shall we eat? And, and what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear for clothing for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. What, what's the, uh, the contradistinction there? So those who are redeemed shouldn't be doing it because those who are unredeemed, that's what they do. See? For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Is that surprising to you? That your heavenly Father knows exactly what you need, every single thing that you need, that shouldn't surprise you at all. But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. What's your priority? The things we've been talking about. You want to seek his kingdom and his righteousness, your life's going to look like what we've just been studying over the last several weeks. And all these things will be added to you. Paul lived like that, see, on a day-to-day -day basis. And he could say, and in either state, whether in prosperity or abundance, uh, or in uh, with nothing, I am, and I am content. He had none of the world's goods, but he sure made everyone around him who believed what he said rich, didn't he? He had nothing to give, like you remember Peter and John, you know, as they walked by, they said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I give to you. And that's what we have to offer, see. That's what we have to offer. That's the plan of redemption. Ultimate riches, see. We may not have the world's material goods, but we do have true riches and in abundance, you know, which isn't a sin, contrary to the rantings of many of the Democratic Party these days. In abundance, it may be hard to tell if you have the wherewithal to make many rich, true, truly rich, see. If you're in abundance, it may be hard to tell if you have the wherewithal to make many rich. And if you have nothing, do you know that in Christ you possess all things? Even if you have really none of the world's goods, but you have everything when you have Christ? Paul understood he had all the riches of God's grace to make many rich, and he understood that he possessed all things as a result of knowing Christ. So this contentment, again, we go right back to this, contentment based in what? Knowledge. And that knowledge of the world, Word of God it really is foundational in all of these areas of the highs and lows, isn't it? And in, these, in this dichotomy that you constantly see in the, in the middle of your ministry, knowledge of the Word of God is going to take you through. You know, unmet expectations, hardships, and responses, see. Because uh, someone who has the knowledge that this is part and parcel of the ministry of reconciliation and, and that this is what being an ambassador of Christ may look like, they're really ahead of the fastball, aren't they? They already know that this is what it's supposed to look like, and you're only going to know that because you spent time in the Word and you realize that this is part and parcel of faithful ministry. And then you're, you're not burned out, see, because, you know, when I see ministers say, well, I'm just burned out, I, I kind of doubt it was the work. It's more likely the unmet expectation. It's you expected some response other than what you got over the long haul. And yet you don't know if you have a Jeremiah or Ezekiel kind of ministry, do you? How would you able to be able to discern that? You just have to do what you're supposed to do and let the Lord do what he's going to do, see. And so having this knowledge really puts you ahead, if you will, because 
you won't be readily discouraged. And there's no unmet expectations because your expectations are precisely what we just got through reading in these three sets of nine. You have to expect here that people's response to your life and ministry will be a wildly alternating experience. And understanding these things is really critical if you're going to be effective in what God has called you and me to be. And so Hart's words ring so obviously true. Nor can he expect to be perfectly saved till he finds himself utterly lost. And when all this is done, and his heart is assured of the total remission of sins, when his pardon is signed and his peace is procured, from that moment his conflict begins. And that's not a surprise for you, is it? This bow be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for the joy of being together. We thank you for your word and, and covering these three sets of nine from the pen of the Apostle Paul, but from your own heart to us. As you encouraged the church to accept Paul commended as a minister, you let us know what it looks like to have your stamp of approval on ministry. And it's a lot. But if the Holy Spirit is, is in control or we're walking in control, and by, controlled by the Holy Spirit, then these things become manifest in our lives. We're in the Word each day. We understand what you expect, and then we begin to respond this way. This is such a joy to have this as part of the reality of our life, to be responding in such a way that it aligns with what you say true ministry is supposed to look like, and not being surprised, and in sorrow, not overwhelmed, not just thinking about ourselves, but instead casting those cares on you, for you care for us, having sorrow over the right things, not our own life lot, but over the things that grieve the heart of, of you, and then responding by joy and in thankfulness and in prayer. So Lord, help us to be people that who are like that. Very, very simple. We're not, there's nothing complex here, nothing earth-shattering. We're not saying any, any, any points here that no one's heard before, or even if they hadn't heard it, it wasn't something unexpected shouldn't surprise us that your word is important and to be in it is important. It shouldn't surprise us that we're to continue this battle of purity so we may respond correctly in all these things. It shouldn't surprise us that even though here in the United States we perhaps do not see the kind of hardships that uh, others may be seeing right now, it doesn't mean that so it very clearly though indicates that because it's still active in the church that it's not isolated to just the Apostle Paul. And in that great throng that, uh, of all those who watch and there are witnesses, help as they cheer us on, showing us that the life of faith was the way. Lord, help us to, to take up the weapons of righteousness from the left and right. And help us to throw down strongholds and take captive every thought. And help us to, uh, to be about that work that you've given us to do. And then fully expecting that some will love us and some will not. And not be surprised in any of those things. That's our prayer today. As we approach this Christmas season and next week, as we, as we remember the incarnation and do uh, a little bit different things and set this aside temporarily, Lord, I pray that you continue to do your work, transforming us into the image of your Son. We want to be like the Master and like the Teacher. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.